what unites us as a church? You know, what is it that we have in common that means that we can identify as a group? Is it our keen fashion sense and our stylish haircuts? Actually, don't answer that because I might get offended. (laughs) Is it that we all share a passion for sport? We all barrack for the same football team. We can count that out, can't we? Uh, Is it that we enjoy singing songs to God? That we want to reach out to the lost and marginalised in our community? That we think the Bible is a great book? Surely those things are a little bit closer, but they're still not quite it. None of these truly explain what unites us as a church. And that's because it doesn't come down to our interests, our hobbies, our passions, our personalities. It comes down to a shared conviction. A shared conviction about who Jesus is. What unites us as a church is the conviction that Jesus is the Messiah who has come into the world to restore sinners to God. It's this truth or this confession about Jesus that actually unites us despite our differences. It's what gives shape to our unity. It's what helps us to have clarity on what we will be and what we will do as a church. In fact, true confession of Jesus as the Messiah is the firm foundation of the church. That's our big idea for today. And we're going to unpack it from Matthew 16 verses 13 to 20. The true confession pertains to to what Christians must confess about Jesus. And it's a true confession for you if you truly believe it and are willing to live in line with it. And this true confession is the firm foundation of the church. It's the foundation of the universal church made up of all believers throughout space and time. And it's the foundation of individual local churches. So there are three topics that I want us to explore and they relate to the confession that Jesus is the Messiah. You'll see them listed in your outline and just a warning, the last one is the longest. So let's get started by looking at verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. You can check it out in your Bible or in your welcome card. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, before we look at how the disciples respond, I first want to point out that the location of this event is actually pretty important. Caesarea Philippi was a city in the territory of Philip the Tetrarch. He was the son of Herod the Great. And we actually met his brother in Matthew chapter 14. Remember that guy, Herod Antipas, who was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded? This is one of his brothers, Philip, and he ruled over uh, the region north of Galilee. So Herod Antipas ruled over Galilee. Up north, we had the Tetrarchy of Philip. Uh, This area included Mount Hermon. And Philip had actually expanded one of the towns at the foot of the mountain. And he gave it the name Caesarea in honour of the emperor, of Caesar. Now, his father, Herod the Great, had already built a city down on the coast called Caesarea. So Philip wanted to distinguish it from that one. So he added his own name to the title, Caesarea Philippi. So a fairly typical Herodian ruler using his wealth to impress the emperors, but also showing off his own power and prestige. 
Now, it's very interesting that Jesus would quiz his disciples about his identity in this specific area. As Aaron has shown us in recent sermons, Jesus has been traveling around in Gentile territory. Uh, He went northwest near Tyre and Sidon and had that encounter with a Canaanite woman. Uh, Then he went back down south and over the other side of the Sea of Galilee to the Decapolis, which were Gentile cities. He fed the 4,000 there and crossed back over the sea. And now he's travelled 40 kilometres north of the Sea of Galilee. And this is where we have the big reveal about Jesus' identity. So it's certainly no coincidence that the confession that Jesus is the Messiah would take place here, since it was a confession that not only impacted on the Jews, it also impacted on Gentiles and, of course, the powers of Rome. So let's get on with exploring this confession. We'll look at point A in our outlines. It's an apostolic confession revealed by God. Now we can see in verse 14 that in answer to Jesus' question, the disciples reel off some names. Uh, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, these men were all prophets. And there are good reasons why people attributed these identities to Jesus, but we don't have time to go into all the details. What we do need to see is that everyone was putting Jesus in the category of a messenger or a teacher, which actually falls far short of who Jesus really is. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Who do you say I am? And this is when Peter makes his amazing confession in verse 16. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This is the apostolic confession. It's apostolic because it reflects the views of the apostles. Now, Peter alone is speaking here, but he's actually speaking on behalf of the 12 disciples. And these guys were more than just disciples. They were Jesus' specially chosen 12 guys who would be his apostles. They'd be sent out as his witnesses, his authorised representatives. To declare Jesus as the Messiah is to declare that he's the promised one from God. The word Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach and it literally means anointed one. Uh, In the Old Testament you might know that a, a king would be anointed with oil as a way of saying that he was now God's ruling king. Uh, priests were anointed too. Uh, prophets, even the judges would be anointed. You know, God's spirit would come upon them and empower them. And so for Jesus to be the capital M Messiah is for him to be the ultimate anointed one. The Greek version of this word is Christos, from which we get Christ. So to say Jesus Christ is the same as saying Jesus Messiah. There's a further explanation that he's also the son of the living God. This actually just reveals a common concept among the Jews that the Messiah would be seen as God's son having a special relationship. You can see that in Psalm 2 or even 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now what's particularly interesting for us here is that this information was not something that Peter figured out on his own. Have a look at verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So even though Jesus as the Messiah is an apostolic confession, it's also one that's revealed by God. 
that's not to say that the disciples were completely clueless. Uh, we do know that they were often stupid and didn't understand what was going on, but they were already following Jesus in the hope that he would be the Messiah. They had witnessed all of these signs, these things that he was doing that demonstrated his identity. So what's actually happened to Peter here is that now he has a sure conviction that Jesus is the Messiah. God has opened his eyes, opened his heart, so that he can embrace that truth and internalize it. Perhaps it's a bit like someone uh, might tell you a movie that they think is really amazing. They'll say it's one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, perhaps one of the Lord of the Rings movies, or The Wizard of Oz, or Casablanca, or Fast and the Furious 5, or Tinkerbell and the Great Fairy Rescue. You just pick your favourite one from there. Now, you might accept that it's true. You might go, yep, I, I'm happy to believe this person. This is one of the greatest movies ever made. You might tell other people they should watch it based on the recommendation. But it's not until you watch it yourself that you can truly embrace it as one of the greatest movies. It's only then that you know it's truly amazing. And so we can know facts about Jesus. We can understand the concepts. We can recite all the details. But only God can internalize that information and turn it into belief, into conviction, into a confession that comes from the heart. That's what's happened to Peter. He already knew Jesus was the Messiah. You know, he had that inkling, that suspicion. He had a rational position that he could defend. But now he truly knows that Jesus is the Messiah because God has clearly and decisively revealed it to him. And so all of this has some implications for us. The first is that a true confession of Jesus must be in line with the apostolic confession. We read their teachings in the rest of the New Testament and even their teachings build on the foundation of the Old Testament and what was taught there. And so we need the Bible to define for us what it means to confess Jesus as the Messiah. You know, we don't get to make up our own thoughts and ideas about that. And in fact, even the apostolic confession was defined by Jesus himself. You see, he determines who he is. We don't determine who he is. But secondly, a true confession doesn't just come through study and reflection. It comes from God. And so as we read the Bible, we need to pray that he would give us understanding, that he would help us to take hold of true ideas about Jesus and discard false ideas about Jesus and to know the difference. And you know, this is actually pretty freeing because it means to become a Christian, you don't need to first have perfect knowledge about Jesus. You don't have to have the full, complete understanding. You actually just need God to reveal the truth and you'll grow into that truth. Finally, it means that we need to pray for those who don't know Jesus. You know, We can't reason people, we can't argue people into making a true confession because God has to reveal the truth to them. So if you're here today and you're not sure you know, what you believe about Jesus, or maybe you find it hard to accept that he is the Messiah, you're not even sure what that means, well then why not pray to God? Why not ask him to reveal the truth to you, just like he did to Peter? Or perhaps even ask someone here to pray with you. Well, the next point about this true confession of Jesus as Messiah 
is that it's the unshakable foundation upon which Jesus builds his church. That's point B on your outline. Have a look at verse 18. I'll read it out for us. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You might recall that Aaron actually preached on this passage last year in the membership sermon in our Union and Communion series. Uh, And he honed in on this verse, so I don't want to repeat too much of what he said, so I encourage you to listen to his sermon on the podcast. Uh, What I want us to see here today is that Jesus makes an amazing declaration in verse 18. In fact, he makes three. The first is that he links Peter to the foundation of the church. Now, there's a word play here that we don't really get in English. Uh, The name Peter comes from the word Petros, which means rock. And so there's been a long debate over the centuries of what's the relationship between Peter and the rock that Christ will build his church on and the confession that Peter has made. Uh, We're not going to go into all the details, so I've kind of done a bit of a cheat and put a link to an article on your outline. You can look that up later and read that. I think the best approach, though, is to say that uh, the rock on which Jesus builds the church is the apostolic confession of Jesus as the Messiah. And this means it certainly is the confession and not simply Peter the man. It's not as if Jesus built his church on Peter. But at the same time, this foundation can't be separated from Peter since he's the one who made the apostolic confession. The church was founded on the ministry of the apostles. The second amazing declaration is that this foundation is unshakable and so the church is unshakable. This is pretty significant, a big claim for Jesus to make given where he was geographically. I remember we've said that the city of Caesarea Philippi was in Gentile territory and right there was a magnificent marble temple dedicated to Augustus Caesar, where people engaged in emperor worship. Uh, Also, next to that temple was a cave in the base of Mount Hermon, a cave or a grotto that was dedicated to the god Pan. Sacrifices to Pan were actually thrown into this cave. It was well known. This area was a centre of pagan worship. And here is Jesus saying to Peter that he's going to build his church on this rock, and nothing will overcome it. So you've got all of this in the background. Yet despite the great Mount Hermon filling the horizon, there is a greater rock on which the church will stand. Despite the forces of darkness that are worshipped in this area, there is a greater truth on which the church will stand. And despite the power of Rome and the emperor, there is a greater power that the church will stand on. The confession that Jesus is the Messiah is greater than all of these. Now it is possible that Jesus' reference to the gates of Hades relates to Pan's grotto, perhaps to the devil himself. However, I think Jesus has something different in mind. See, he doesn't use the word for hell, the word that we would usually associate with as the, the final place of judgment. Instead, Hades is more about the place of the dead like the Jewish idea of the grave, or maybe you've heard of Sheol. In fact, there are multiple references in the Old Testament to the gates of death or the gates of Sheol. 
So while I certainly believe that Satan and his forces can't overcome the church, I think that's more implied by the surroundings. I think what Jesus means in what he says is that even death can't overcome the church. This actually leads us to how it is that the confession of Jesus Messiah can be an unshakable rock or foundation. As we'll see by the end of Matthew's book, Jesus will die on the cross at the hands of the Romans. And it will appear to everyone as if the Messiah has failed. But in reality, it was on the cross that Jesus did his greatest work of all as the Messiah. He laid down his life for his people. He offered his life in exchange for ours so that we might be forgiven. And then he rose up from the grave, which proved that his sacrifice had been accepted and also showed that he had beaten death once and for all. This is why the confession of Jesus as the Messiah is an unshakable foundation. He has proved that he's the Messiah and will forever remain as the Messiah. We don't need another one because death has no hold over him. No enemy can overcome him, not even the gates of death. Jesus is literally the son of the living God. That's not to say he has a special relationship with God as an exalted human. No, he is God himself who shares in that immortality. He has an indestructible, everlasting life. Death cannot beat him. And the third amazing declaration Jesus makes is that he will build his church. The church is a way of referring to God's people and it shows that the church belongs to Jesus and he's the one who builds it. Christians are united upon, they are gathered upon, they are built upon the rock of the apostolic confession that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus himself builds people into that church. And so all of this has some important implications for us. The first is that anyone can join God's people. And you think about it, at the time if Jesus said, what do you have to do to become one of God's people? The Jews would talk about circumcision and the law and the temple and sacrifices and things like that. But what we're learning here is we're not united by following laws and customs or adopting certain culture. Instead, we join by having faith in Jesus as the Messiah. That means anyone, anywhere can be a Christian. The second implication is that since it's Jesus who builds the church, again, we have to pray. We share the good news about Jesus. We teach people the truth. We organize ourselves into local churches. But Jesus builds his church. And so we should continually pray and ask him to do that. The third implication is that since Jesus builds his church on a sure foundation, we can trust that the church will never fail. Now, of course, individual local churches will come and go. Denominations will come and go. But the invisible, worldwide, universal church will prevail. And we can be 100% confident that the kingdom of God will come in its fullness. We need not be scared when the church loses influence in our country. We need not be scared when the census shows that less and less Australians are identifying as Christian. The church will not be overcome. 
The confession that Jesus is the Messiah is an apostolic confession revealed by God. It's the unshakable foundation upon which Jesus builds his church. And our final point is that he's the key for local churches assessing someone's kingdom status. Have a look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, at first reading, it it seems like Jesus is saying to Peter that he alone will have the keys to the kingdom and he'll be the supreme leader of the church on earth. Peter can open or close the gates to heaven and so people's salvation is dependent on their relationship to Peter. In fact, this is how many people take this verse. I mean, maybe you've even heard jokes before about St. Peter in front of the pearly gates in heaven and he lets people into heaven. But this approach misunderstands the passage and how it fits within the wider book and the Bible. So let's break it down a step at a time. First, let's think about the keys themselves. You'll see a sub-point on your outline that says this. The keys of the kingdom are given to the whole church and are about authority. Now, while Jesus is indeed addressing Peter here, we actually see throughout the book of Acts that all of the apostles equally exercise authority. They're using the keys of the kingdom in their ministry. Also, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18 shows that the church as a whole receives the keys. In fact, if you've got a Bible there, flip forward a couple of chapters to chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 15 to 20. You might know these verses. They speak about uh, what happens if a fellow Christian sins against you or what steps you go through and there's kind of an escalating and expanding process. And if it's a really serious offence and the person refuses to repent, then sadly that the last step is to treat them as an unbeliever. And then have a look at verse 18. Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Can you see that picks up the language of Matthew 16, verse 19? The keys in chapter 16 are about binding and loosing. Peter is to use the keys. We, We know that the apostles can use the keys. But we see here even local churches are using the keys. And it's about a type of authority. The church represents Jesus on earth and has been delegated the role of exercising the keys. Now, linking this back to our big idea for today, this authority is related to the confession that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, we could say in one sense that uh, this confession, that the gospel message, is the key to the kingdom of heaven. And when we declare the gospel and people believe it, heaven is unlocked for them. And so the keys are about assessing, testing a true confession of Jesus as the Messiah. We'll see this more in our next sub-point in our outline. Binding and loosing on earth reflects what has already been bound or loosed in heaven. Now there's some pretty tricky grammar here in verse 19 of Matthew 16. I'm not sure if many of you are excited about grammar. Maybe some of you are. Most of you aren't. So we'll try and move through this quickly. Binding and loosing is about someone's status with regards to the kingdom. 
It's probably the case that if someone is bound, then they are banned or blocked from the kingdom. But if they are loosed, then they are able to enter the kingdom. The way this verse reads in English, though, makes it sound like if Peter makes a declaration on earth about someone's status, then heaven updates their records and has to act in line with Peter. That doesn't seem right, does it? How could fallible humans dictate to God who gets to get in and who doesn't? This is where understanding the grammar is really important. Uh, If you look carefully at your welcome card or perhaps even in your Bible, you'll see a little footnote there and shows what's in the NIV margin. See, there's another way of translating some key words. Uh, Rather than will be bound or will be loosed as some kind of future idea, it's better to read this as will have been bound or will have been loosed. Uh, Just in case you care, maybe a couple of you do, it's because the verb used is in the perfect tense. Uh, That's a special way of describing a past event that still has effect. It's kind of got ongoing consequences. For example, I might say I opened the door or uh, I had opened the door, but that doesn't mean the door is necessarily still open. But if I say I have opened the door, that implies it's a past event, but it's still relevant. The door is still open. Now, I have no idea why our translation is the way it is, but I think it's much better to go with the margin reading. And so this means that whenever Peter makes a decision, it will have already been made in heaven. Peter's actions here on earth reflect what will have been loosed or bound in heaven already, because God knows. And so really, Peter is affirming the decisions of heaven. He doesn't create the decisions of heaven. But still, how is it that Peter could have some kind of connection with what's happening? Well, it's by exercising the keys and doing so in a godly and biblical way, which means testing whether someone makes a true confession of Jesus as the Messiah. This then leads to our final sub-point and how local churches use the keys. Uh, Local churches affirm, not create, the kingdom citizenship of individuals. Now, we can't cover all of this in much detail. If you've got questions, do come and speak to me afterwards. I might go on a bit, so maybe just say how long you want to talk about it. But there's lots to say, and it's very exciting and interesting. Uh, A helpful metaphor around this idea, which many Bible teachers use, is to say that local churches are like embassies in overseas countries. Uh, Let's say I'm on holidays in Indonesia and I lose my passport. I can't prove to anyone that I'm an Australian citizen. So what I do is I go to the Australian embassy and I get them to check up, to look up my citizenship. Uh, They'll have a list on their database, maybe a photo of me, and they'll be able to verify whether or not I'm an Australian. Perhaps they'll also ask me some questions about where I live and things like that. And maybe some questions that only Australians could answer. Like, who is the Prime Minister? What's the National Anthem? What's Vegemite? Some key things that would be a sign that I'm an Australian. Now, the embassy wouldn't create my citizenship, would they? They would simply affirm it and then issue me with a a new or temporary passport. They would publicly identify me as an Australian. In the same way, 
local churches can assess someone's kingdom citizenship by asking some key questions and observing someone's behaviour. Now they can't make this person a citizen of heaven, but perhaps they could affirm or deny their status. Now of course, churches will make mistakes, right? And the decisions that we might make as a local church won't really change what's happening in heaven. We've got to work hard that we're affirming what God would affirm. But the point for us here is that I think Jesus is saying that there actually is a way for us to assess someone's kingdom status. And that this is actually for the good of the church. It's something that's important for us to do. And it starts with the confession that Jesus is the Messiah. But it doesn't end there. And this is actually hinted at by verse 20. Have a look in your passage. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This seems crazy. Like finally, Peter gets it. Finally, the apostles realize that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. Jesus praises Peter and says, this is fantastic. This is going to be how the church will grow. And he goes, but by the way, don't tell anybody. This doesn't make sense. Well, the thing is, they've answered one question correctly. The question is, who is the Messiah? The answer is Jesus. But there's another more important question. What is the Messiah? And they're not ready for that answer yet. They're going to need a lot more teaching. We learn this immediately in the next passage where Jesus teaches that he must suffer and die and Peter challenges Jesus about this. He rebukes him because he, he understands that the Messiah must be the conquering king, not a suffering servant. Now Aaron's going to unpack all of this next week. I'm not going to preach his sermon for him now. So let's just say that it's one thing to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. It's another thing to know what that means. Clearly then, Assessing someone's kingdom status is more than just asking whether they agree with the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. This is why churches should ask more questions, investigate further. Now you might be troubled by this. So let me share two examples. These are based on people that I interacted with during this week. Uh, My daughter Charlotte has just started high school and she invited one of her new friends to come over for dinner. And this new friend is a Muslim. Now, did you know that Muslims believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Let me read from Surah 3, 45 of their holy book, the Quran. It says this, When the angel said, O Mary, Allah gives you the good news of a word from him whose name is the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, who is illustrious in this world and the hereafter, and who is one of those brought near to Allah. A Muslim would be able to say, yes, of course, Jesus is the Messiah. He's a very important person. So perhaps it's helpful. We could point to Peter's confession going, well, yes, he also adds that Jesus is the son of the living God. I mean, Muslims certainly wouldn't believe that. But guess who came knocking at my door this week? The Jehovah's Witnesses. How exciting is that? I told them that I was preparing a sermon on this passage. It made them a little nervous. And so I quickly turned the conversation to Jesus. They want to talk about the kingdom and the government and all this kind of stuff, you know, good, wholesome living. I said, no, let's talk about Jesus. Who is he? And so I said, 
do you believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God? And the lady standing on my doorstep smiled and said, Yes, of course. He's the firstborn over all creation. I said, Yes, but do you think he's a created being? To which she said, Yes. And then spoke about how she just couldn't possibly see how Jesus could be God. He is just another created being like us. Now we had a, a long conversation about how you can be saved and how the spirit works. And uh, there was the, the other guy who was there with her is actually a Greek man. So we pulled out our Greek Bibles and had a bit of a chat about John chapter 3. Very exciting. They said they might come back sometime, I suspect, with reinforcements. <laughs> but the point is, Je- Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, they would be able to say Peter's confession too. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But it's not a true confession, is it? Because they don't believe the content. See, they don't allow Jesus and the apostles, they don't allow the Bible to define what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. They put their reason over revelation and they deny the Godhood of Jesus. That's actually a key part of the Gospel. Now, it's one thing to not fully understand that, It's another thing to deny it, isn't it? They also add human works and human efforts to salvation. And so they might agree with the confession, but they actually reject what the confession really means. And sometimes we can be a little bit like that too. We can put our own preferences, our own limited understanding above the revelation found in the Bible. You know, salvation really is as simple as repentance and faith. Turn away from living your own life for, your own, for yourself. Turn to God. Put your trust in Jesus as your Savior. It's as simple as that. But you know, it matters what we think about Jesus. It matters how we live our lives. A true confession of Jesus as the Messiah will come with conviction and a willingness to let him define who he is. A true confession of Jesus as the Messiah will reveal itself in a changed life over time where we let him be Lord and we seek to follow his teaching, even though we'll be imperfect at that, right? While Jesus alone knows who is truly in and who is out of his church, he does actually give us some signs for assessing someone's kingdom status. But listen to me very clearly. Listen to this carefully. These signs that we look for, they don't save you. They are signs that you are saved. And we may express different signs throughout our lives as we have our ups and downs and as we grow. But you'd expect that a genuine Christian over time would be growing in their understanding of who Jesus is, that they'd be growing in their godliness, showing the fruit of the Spirit over time. And so Jesus actually expects local churches to be able to see these signs in people and he expects us to exercise the keys of the kingdom. But really it's more of an art than a science, isn't it? It's not a a checklist that we can tick off. Now, I appreciate this talk of exercising the keys might make many of you feel uncomfortable. And so there are two truths we need to hold on to. Uh, The first is that our confession of Jesus brings us into unity, not just with him, 
but with all Christians. See, it's not just an individual state. It's not just you and Jesus, and it's nobody else's business. Jesus saves us into a people. Jesus makes us a people, and people have responsibilities to each other. We look out for each other. The second truth is that the reason we have the keys of the kingdom is for the good of others, so that all people might be called to true faith, be clear on what they believe about Jesus, so they might be encouraged in their faith. See, the keys are not a means of drawing a circle of righteousness around yourself so you can then sit in judgment on everybody else. Jesus builds his church. But you know what? He gives us the privilege of peeking into it, seeing a bit of the behind-the-scenes process. He actually wants to use us in that work. And so we should use the keys with humility, but also confidence. So I hope you can see then that what unites us as a church is true confession of Jesus as Messiah. What does that mean? Well, that's what we're going to keep unpacking as we go through Matthew's Gospel. And so we can maintain our unity together by championing true confession of Jesus as Messiah. You can see I've got some points listed on your outline there. Really, they just sum up what we've already been talking about. Jesus as Messiah is the sure foundation of the universal church, but also of Darabin Presbyterian Church. So let's grow together in our understanding. Let's help each other to live out a true confession of Jesus. And let's pray for God to work and let's use the keys for the good of others. In fact, let's pray and do that now. Our Father God, we thank and praise you for the wonderful truth that your church, your people, is founded not on a common interest or culture or heritage, but upon the true confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who came to save us and restore us to you. Please be at work in our midst and throughout the city of Darabin by revealing to people that Jesus is the Messiah, your Son. And please help your people here to grow in a deeper understanding of this truth and to grow in a way of life that reflects this truth. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would keep building your church and give us the privilege of being used as you build it. Amen.